welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Why didn't I say that in Italian? I just realized I could have said that in Italian and it would have been great. Darn it. Oh, well, we're really excited to introduce our guest today. Before I do that, our other host on this podcast, just so you know what their voice is and who they are when they pop up, is Justin Dorfman. Justin, newly Ospo lead at Sourcegraph. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Calling from a library in Stavanger, Norway. Pretty cool. Highly suggest people go to Stavanger if you like Norwegians. Our guest today is not here. Our guest today is normally living in San Francisco and is the illustrious Stefano Maffoli, who is the new ED for the OSI. Of course, you know what the OSI is, the Open Source Initiative. These are the people in charge of the open source definition, which is the 10 rules you have to have to apply to an open source license to say whether or not it is truly open source. We've had people from the OSI on this podcast before. We've had Patrick and Josh, and we've had a host of people who've gone in and out of the OSI, myself included. I guess I worked there for a while. So I think we all should know what that is. If you don't know what the OSI is, really do go check out opensource.org. It's a lot of various things there. But Stefano has only been working there for a few months. So I'm very excited to learn about how he got that role and what's he doing. But I've been talking way too much. Stefano, how are you doing? Good. Thanks, Richard. Very good to be here. Thanks, Justin. Also for the opportunity. It's been fun to listen to Sustain podcast and read and participate in the community. I've been in open source for many years. So if you wanted to know how I got at the open source initiative. And uh, <laughs> the Likewise. story starts many, many years ago, many years ago. I've never been a developer. So I graduated as an architect and all my studies were about buildings and the uh, squares and cities design. And when I started using a computer, I realized that they were not really good. The software was hard to buy, hard to procure, expensive. And once you receive the software, it had many promises on the box, but delivered very few. You had to become a programmer basically to get your software to respond and to do the things that I needed to do as a urban plan. And it was really when I started reading it, I was like, wait a second. So there are these competing software packages that do half of the things that I need and I cannot merge them together because I'm not out. This doesn't work. Uh, how do software engineers do this? They starting from scratch all the time. In architecture, you don't start from scratch all the time. One of my first lessons in architecture was my professor said, don't try to invent everything on your own. If you need, if you get the task to build a new building. Just look around the building in front of yours, the building on the sides. Most likely you will have to do something similar to that one. So imitate, imitate, imitate rather than reinvent all the time. So and long story short, I became passionate about software and open source and free software, especially because I think the philosophy behind it, the pragmatic approach is the building on top of what other researchers and smart people have done before, fast forward the evolution of the software. When I discovered the GNU system and the, the Free Software Foundation, that opened the world to me. I started advocating for Linux, which was coming up in, the, in those days, and I never really looked back. 
Would you say you're a dry bro, meaning don't repeat yourself, but repeat others? <laughs> Never heard that, but I'm going to reuse it. <laughs> I just made it up. I'm very proud of it. So please, but bro, I wish it was a better acronym than that. No, we can find something eventually. Because that's fascinating. So you've been in this industry for a long time. You know, the power of open source, you know, how convenient it is for getting things working. The OSI had Patrick at the helm for a long time. I feel like it was like 10 years. And then Deb Nicholson was the interim executive director. She's now at PSF. Congratulations, Deb. You are awesome and amazing. I'm really happy for her there. I'm curious, Stefano, when coming into the ED role, besides like helming this massive ship that also kind of, you know, guides the ecosystem, what were you really excited about doing? What do you say to like the interview boards and like, hey, I want to do this thing to the board of directors? It's a great question because I was on the sidelines yelling at and shaking my fist. Why is OSI not doing this? Why is this organization not doing this? And just by coincidence, you know, I was working for other companies and I was mostly doing marketing and community management for different corporations. After my initial career as the lead in the pre-software foundation, pre-software foundation Europe world. I took a break from nonprofits. I was too young to be poor. So I decided to go to work for bigger organizations and really got more experience in, in marketing and managing people. But when I saw the opening for the open source initiative, it was a coincidence of LM. I was looking for new challenges, but also I was out there looking at and shaking my fist again looking at the open source movement as a whole under a huge amount of threats. There was the push for new licenses that were not really sticking to the principles of open source, lots of internal debates, ripping the community apart. And I really felt that everything that we built was shaking, shaking in a very difficult position. So I applied because I really thought I had a chance to go back to it and I really needed to feel like I was supporting open source as a community because I would have not really liked the idea of standing on the side for too long. And honestly, I didn't think that the board would select me. Sure, I have a lot of experience, but I didn't feel like I was the only or the best qualified. So it was a good interview process. It was very professional. I was really amazed by the questions that the board was asking me and since I was shaking my fist for a long time, I really had a lot of ideas <laughs> that resonated with the board. Like I identified threats, we shared a lot of common views, but it felt very natural to talk to these people, many of whom I did not know directly. So they were new people. Okay. So I have to ask, like, what are those ideas? So you've been in the OSI now for a few months. What have you started? What are you excited about? What's happened? Right. So. I've been at the organization for six months. The first quarter, first three months, so the end of last year, we finished with the board, the process to review the mission, the vision, and set a strategy for the next few years. So we reviewed the board before I joined, had already reviewed the mission and the vision. And the mission for the open source initiative is restated by saying that we are the steward of the open source definition with the foundation for a multi-billion dollar open source software ecosystem. And some keywords there, steward, because we don't really enforce the definition. It's 
ours to maintain, we don't define open source. We maintain it for the community. So members, corporations, legal communities, the civil society, nonprofit organizations, those are the ones who will help us, will tell us the open source definition is those 10 commandments, if you want, those 10 principles, or they can also tell us, like, we need to review it. We need to think about changing those, but we maintain it for them. We're not the, the authority, the, the only authority, the ultimate authority. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about the 10 principles changing because I think they need to change. I think that they're not great in today's environment. I'm just really curious to hear what your thoughts are on a couple of things. One of which is dual licensing being part of the open source ecosystem that isn't negative. Another one being ethical source licenses, which I see as being big tent open source, but don't count under the OSD at all because they're limiting you know, possible usage. And I'm really curious how you see the OSD changing in light of those two considerations. That makes sense. And you probably expected this question, but I'm just, I still want yeah. to know. I do expect this question. And let me start by saying that I do think that technology is not neutral. <laughs> it's really simple. It's like saying that buildings are not neutral. Like every time you build something, you are impacting the life or you decide not to build something. You are impacting society in some way, shape or form. And every time you build software, release software, you have a weapon in your hand. That said, we need to have those conversations. We need to talk about it. Like, there's got to be a way. So we do need to think about how the software and the systems that we have implemented are impacting the lives of people. And there's no easy answer because I'm especially, since you mentioned, you know, ethical source and other initiatives and in similar ways, the ramifications of changing the definition to allow for limitation and usage can be huge. So the same careful touch and light touch that the license committee takes while reviewing new licenses in order to understand whether they respond or not to the open source, the current open source definition, we need to apply to reviewing the open source definition. I know that it might not resist for hundreds of years untouched because there are other challenges besides those that you just mentioned. The same way, changing it required careful thinking because those 10 imperfect points have created an ecosystem that can be damaged by very, very small tweaks. So we have to be extremely careful. And that's why I like to rephrase, I mean, right to reiterate the fact that we are the stewards of the definition. So if this ecosystem joins and puts together their minds, their smart thinking, and comes up with a better way and trying all the principles that we want to have inscribed into the definition, then we, we can definitely have that conversation. What are the biggest debates that are ripping the community apart with the licensing and what the definition should be? What are you tackling first when it comes to these debates and what are they exactly? To be honest, I don't think that these are the biggest debates. I think that the biggest debates are happening, first of all, internally, we have an organization that is, it made me laugh. You mentioned at the beginning, it's a big ship. It's actually very small. It's tiny. We have a revenues last year for $500,000 and one full-time oh. employee, which is me. 
as of January, we have two employees, two full-time employees and a handful of consultants full and part-time. And the so board, I, and the board are great and have a lot of influence. So like, I, I guess I, I wasn't representing the size of your organization. No, it's really small, right. <laughs> but the impact is. No, we, we have great people. Exactly. Exactly. So we have great people. Historically, the organization has been run by the board. And as of end of 2021, the organization is run by me with staff and the board is just an advisory board. And I say just not by diminishing the role, but because they need to advise me and they need to support me into the execution of the vision and the strategies that we set together. So the biggest debate that we have, aside from building this new organization or rebuilding this new organization with a new structure, is thinking about the impact of new technology on the definition. Because I think, and we have discussed this at the end of last year, debating with the board, that the new technologies have a much higher impact, potential impact on the open source definition than they do the emergence of separate business models with which we have coexisted for a long time or other approaches to software distribution with which we have coexisted for a long time. So there's nothing wrong in my mind in thinking that someone wants to develop software and release it with limitations of usage because of ethical approaches. Right. Okay. It, it's not open source. I mean, it's unlikely that it, you can even enforce that, but hey, you know, we got to make experiments. We got to play with these ideas because in the end, I think that open source and free software and the new project came out of some people thinking this is the right thing to do and I'll play with it and I'll see what happens. It was not <laughs> planned that software and open source software would take over the world. So, Going back to the technologies instead, I have clearly in my mind when the iPhone was first released and the Apple Store concept came out, I realized that probably some principles of copyleft would be hard to apply. And we never really had a coherent conversation as a community to think, wait a second, if a binary is distributed only through one channel, on a device. So you lose that possibility to install other software on your own device. What happens there? If I get some, let's say, you know, a word processor for an iPhone and I want to load it on my phone, I still have to go through the Apple Store. And if that word processor is copyleft, then I get a binary only that is signed with principle with tool sets and the whole tool chain is not controlled by me. So, and the signature keys for the binary. So I cannot reproduce really that binary. I don't think that we really had sat down as a community and thought about the implication of the Apple store for free software and open source. And now let's say that that ship has sailed. So what's coming up next? And I thought artificial intelligence is a new thing. It's changing the boundary between data and software is now blurred. You have data that you import and you train and you build a data model. And then that data model, you build on top of that and build applications that recognize a cat from a dog. Now you want a source code of that cat versus dog thing and you want to modify it. What is the source code you want to get? Is that the model? But the model is the output of a training software, right? What's the boundary there? So we need to explore that. We need to have that conversation. And I think that that's much more 
on point, crucial, and potentially reshaping the definition. Are there any plans to work with the OpenAI organization? Absolutely. So OpenAI has a very interesting history and a very interesting name too. There are a lot of organizations out there who are building models and paying with business models too. So in order for 2022, one of the initiatives that we have started at the OSI is exactly a conversation, an online event to explore artificial intelligence impact on open source and the open source definition. So we're going to start with interviews with experts and we're going to release them as podcast series. And then after that, we'll put together these experts and other experts in live panel conversations to ask and start putting together the questions to the answers to questions, like what you think should an open AI system look like? What are your best wishes for what should that be? And let's put those into a document and use that document as a starting point for going down deeper next year or keep on chatting about it. So $500,000 for a brand as recognizable as the OSI is pretty pitiful. Not to say that as a diss, I'm just saying like, it's sad that there's not more people that are stepping up to the plate. Is this podcast move a way to kind of diversify the revenue that's coming in? What other initiatives do you have down the pipe that is going to increase that? Because I saw Betsy at PyCon and I was like, hey, oh my God, congrats on the new gig. She's like, thanks. It's part-time. I'm like, what? It's part-time? What what do you mean it's part-time? So I see there is a funding issue. I know Chris Anishek has been very vocal about trying to bring it more organized like the Linux Foundation where there's more money coming in. How are you as the leader going to diversify this revenue and get it to the point where Betsy can work full-time if she wants, or you could bring on more staff so it's not just you and a handful of others? No, absolutely. So this podcast that I mentioned is called Deep Dive AI, and it's part of an event for which we are raising funding. It's funny because we were thinking about what sort of events to diversify our revenue. And at the end of last year, when COVID, Omicron was starting again, and we were all scared about throwing, organizing a live event again. And we were all bored about the idea of having another online event only. So we brainstormed a little bit and had this idea for a long time of creating interviews instead of live chats. Interviews packaged as podcasts and much easier to consume. So podcast followed by panel, followed by a report. It's six months worth of content. People stay engaged. It's great. And in fact, the response from potential sponsors has been overwhelming. I got to say, we already have some good promising leads and, and even two committed sponsors we will announce soon. So that's one source of the revenue, the events. The other source, the main source is sponsorships from corporations like Google is our top sponsor now, but we're hoping to add more. Then we have Comcast and Twitter and, and Red Hat and, and a bunch of others. I'm sorry if I'm not remembering all of them. And that's another, the largest chunk of our revenues. And we're fundraising also for specific projects too, because we know that the way we publish the licenses, the list of licenses, the way we discuss them and the way we review them. So there's three pillars. 
they're not up to speed for 2022, not for this age. So they're published as web pages and there should be an API so that projects like SPDX, FOSSA and others can interrogate an API and point it. Is this an open source license? When was it approved? Where can I find the minutes from the approval date? What are the features of this license? You know, is this a copyleft license? Is this a non-copyleft? Yeah, does this other more legal features could be summarized in this API? So for publication and the way we discuss them and the way we review them, especially they're very thin, rudimentary with no connection between the end result of the license and the history, because sometimes during conversations, you know, there are versions and we don't know the comments, the reason for why piece of text has been selected or suggested. So all of that, we want to change, but we're raising funds for those. And there is a third element, which is our mission, part of our mission for training and education. So we have a partnership with a university called Brandeis, where we're helping them come up with training programs and that's working and we want to do more, but we need to expand our training and education program. We've had uh, Gregor and Ken, I think it's at UIDAHO Boise now, come on to talk about the Brandeis open source management course that they ran there, which is really cool. So go listen to that if you haven't listened to that yet. So while I'm listening to the great things that you're doing, first off, podcast sounds like a good idea. Speaking as someone who records podcasts professionally all the time, it's really useful to get the word out. And it does help a lot with having regular pieces of content, right? It's really useful in that way. So kudos. One of the things I'm curious about is that the OSI tends to work on a longer time scale in terms of license compliance, largely because it's made up of lawyers. The people who are commenting on the OSI list are not your everyday average MIT slapping on developer. They're generally lawyers who have a lot of context and a lot of time to go through and be like, okay, maybe we'll approve this or not. And I've heard that the length of response time is actually sometimes a detractor for some people looking for license compliance. So I like the idea of working directly with companies to, you know, like FOSA, like SPDX project to basically provide the level of context and help that a steward might provide to the community. One of the things that I'm curious about the second level ramifications of OSF providing that support is how do you expect to mitigate corporate interest ruling the OSI's agenda? Because it seems like corporations are the ones who will benefit from those tools, not necessarily your average developer. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I hear this very often that the fear of influence in corporate agendas in organizations, but I have not seen it that much. I don't see it in practice. Like in theory, it exists, but the people at the board that I work with, they're not corporate firms. <laughs> if I look at their history, even the ones who have spent most of their life in, in their career at big corporations, they have a sincere passion for, for open source and sure their life is shaped and their thoughts are shaped by the fact that the experience that they have in different corporations the same way that my experience comes from being Italian and growing up in Italy and, and coming from architecture rather than software development history. So when you ask me about anything, my response would come from my training, my cultural background. I don't see corporations as these evil, ill-intentioned organs who instill some bad thoughts in the people who work for them so that they can pollute 
Can I clarify something? I don't see that either. I don't see corporations as being inherently evil. I don't see the people who work in them, especially the people who do open source, as being inherently evil either. Pretty much everyone in open source, as far as I can tell, tends to have a great head on their shoulders and is trying to do the right thing. There are some possible exceptions, but we're not going to go into those. That's not really what I'm asking. And maybe an, another way of looking at it is I see deleterious effects of the ecosystem arising as emergent qualities, right? So I see what happens when people use, say, a license over time is that things change. So because of the OSD, we now have amazing licenses that have led to this fantastic world in which all of our code is now built on open source products. That is an emergent quality. It's great. Part of that has to include, and I'm just going to go a bit over here, has to include the fact that, say, the Pentagon uses code to keep national defense security alive, which includes things like separating kids at the borders of Mexico and the United States. That's a direct result of open source code. It's an emergent quality. Do I think anyone was able to make the OSD? No. What I'm curious about is how are you going to try and stop some emerging qualities that come about as a result of corporate interest as opposed to other interests in open source? And a good example here is that ethical licenses are normally not counted as good licenses because of the OSD. I don't think that would be as much of a problem if it wasn't for corporations saying we can't use ethical licenses because legally we cover our own assets here, right? It's not CYA. Uh, I think I understand. I think these are important conversations it's, it have this question. So one thing to keep in mind is the open source initiative has some seats in the board that are assigned or are reserved for affiliate members. And affiliate members are organizations, nonprofit, mostly from all over the world. Yeah. And with competence in different fields, like you know, children protection and, and teachers and students association, legal advocacy, you know, software development like Mozilla, Wikipedia, you know, th there's a variety of interests in there and they all support OSI and support the board. The other part is two seats are selected by the board themselves too. So two board seats. And this is usually, so the board itself can say if there is too much interest from, uh, you know, there is an over-representation of some interest. There is always a way for the board itself to change. And the other seats are elected to individuals. There is no strict rule about affiliation, like the Open Infrastructure Foundation, for example, which is a 501c6, it's a trade association. They have different kind of provisions to prevent from one corporation to own the majority of, of board's seats. The OSI is slightly different. So I, I see there is variety around the OSI and there is a variety of interests. People think, sometimes I read comments saying, who told you, who invested the authority, gave you the authority to, to define it? So it's I define it, so it's I can do whatever I want. And in fact, <laughs> to some extent it's true, but in reality, there are legal documents, there is government who, like the Italian government, for example, but also the Department of Defense in the United States and other governmental organizations who say that open source is, so software can be used or software can be released with licenses that are those defined by the open source initiative. So we have that authority and we feel that responsibility as an organization, the board feels it very well, very well. And the board members, directors, they know and they usually respond. So in practice, we have those mechanisms. They're not legally strict, but until now, there hasn't been the need for it. Going back to your other thoughts about 
the ethical licenses and not being approved and if that's a good thing or not. I like to think of a Buddhist parable of this farmer who had a horse and the horse we'll see. Away. Yeah. And oh my God, the horse got away. It's, that's terrible, right? But then a war started and anybody who had a horse had to send the horse and their son. So, oh, wait a second. So my son could stay at the farm. That's good, right? But then the horse came back and, you know, you never know what the consequences are for if the open source initiative had the ethical licenses approved without the approval of corporations, for example, probably something else would have happened. We, you know, <laughs> don't try to say it. the word is really complex. Yeah, I love that parable a lot. I think it was it was used really well in Charlie Wilson's War by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is great, you know. Oh, how terrible. Well, we'll see. That's fair. But I think what's interesting to me, taking in the complexities of the world, that's kind of what the OSI sometimes does, right, as a steward. And since you don't know everything, I certainly don't know everything. What we have to do is listen and have great conversations. So I guess this goes back to my previous question, which is how are you changing the timescale of those conversations from long email chains with lawyers to, say, bring in people I mean, you mentioned the affiliates as being a check on the ecosystem. I agree with that. But I'm, say, in the open source design community, which is a, an affiliate of OSI, and I haven't waited recently. So I'm curious how you're hoping to involve people for like the affiliates um, who don't have time to read all the legal stuff in your mailing list. One of the things that we have in the pipeline as soon as we have the funding is to reinforce our affiliate programs so that we can get more activities together. So hire someone... Sweet who can engage more directly. We used to do that with volunteers. We're going to put that back in place at some level with staff. And we also want to do a similar thing with the members where individual members right now, they have a mailing list only old school. We really don't have a way to engage between themselves or for us to engage with them. But we have established a newsletter now comes out monthly rather than quarterly like before. We have a new blog, which comes out more than weekly. So we have more news coming out. We have some ways to engage. We have a new website that is hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have it live. And we're going to incorporate new features. Like if you've heard of Indie Web and Activity Pub, so that, you know, comments can be happening in different platforms, but they flow back into the website and into the blog. So we don't have to, we, we can engage with, with people where they are instead of forcing them to subscribe to our own, to one place centralized. So the idea is with Fediverse and, and distributed, distributed social networks, we'll try to implement those ideas in the new systems. I look forward to seeing that. I look forward to being part of that process too. I just realized Sustain is not an affiliate member. That obviously needs to be rectified. So we can, we can work on that. Looks like the newsletter's on the front page. So listeners, if you want to sign up for it, you can just go to opensource.org there. I'm really excited about those conversations happening faster. I think we are running up on times. So one of the things I want to ask Stefano is besides the newsletter, I mean, it looks like you're really putting out blog posts at a, at a pretty fast rate, which is good. Always good to have more content. And besides the awesome podcast, which is coming up soon with... Open AI. What are you most excited about in say the next three to six months? And how can people engage with it? So I'm super excited about the deep dive AI event that we've launched and we're raising funds for because I really think that we've the 
artificial intelligence innovation is happening very fast and it has huge impact on society, huge potential impact on society, potential, not real impact on society. There is already AI systems now deciding whether you stay in jail or you get out of jail, or if you can buy a house or not. And systems, artificial systems, robots, autonomous robots driving around the streets of San Francisco. And we have no idea to know how they program, what kind of rules they are really, you know, who are they picking once they, you know, the choices between hitting a baby or hitting an old woman on the street. We don't know any of that, right? I'm super excited because I want to know. It's my curiosity as, as a human being. I'm really excited also about putting the OSI on a path where we can really help governments, policymakers understand better the world of software. Right? There is a tremendous amount of understanding now, finally, that software has a huge impact on life of people. And for many years, coming from architecture, I was baffled about the rudimentary way of software implementation, software systems implementation. So I always thought that if we deployed roads and bridges the same way that we happily deploy half-broken software systems, thinking, ah, we'll fix it later, and then we don't, <laughs> we would not be driving. We would not be crossing the bridges because we would be a prey. So finally, organizations around the world are recognizing that. And, and the open source initiative, I mean, for what we do, it, we help and advocate for the benefits of open source, and we want to build these bridges with different constituencies so that they can understand, they can, we can work together and we can enable that collaboration that has driven us fast and forward for the past 25 years. Love that. Really deep forward to be part of that conversation as well. Stefano, this has been really great. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that we have plugged opensource.org several times. On Twitter, you are, of course, S. Moffley. That's M-A-F-F-U-L-L-I. Love the geminative consonants. Is there anywhere else that people should reach out or subscribe? You can become a member. That's another way of supporting the organization. You can go through open source or and you will see the button to donate. You can donate as an individual. Much appreciated. Before we wrap up, this is the other part of the show that's always really fun, where we highlight other people or projects which have helped us out along the way. So this is Spotlight, of course. For me and Justin, we have a past. We can talk about pretty much anything as we've done way too many spotlights and we're running out of people's thank because there's a limited amount of thanks you can give in the world. That's not true. You can thank everyone all the time. But anyway, Justin, what is your spotlight today? No-secrets.io. Check it out. You got to elaborate a bit more on that one? No, I'm going to keep it like that. And if you want to check it out, you check it out. Not, I'm not forcing anyone to do it. All right, cool. Thank you very much for that. I want to give another shout out to Deb Newton. I know that Deb has now moved on to the PSF and is amazing there. Really glad taking over Eva's role and Eva's gone on to do something else entirely. But I just want to say that Deb did a fantastic job as an interim ED. I was really proud of her work and I was very happy to have her as a boss. My own time with the OSI was very limited, largely because I'm not the best at asking people for money. Turns out you have to be like, culturally better at that than I am. I'm very good at talking to people about things that don't involve like my own self-interest, 
but asking people for like money is just not up my alley. And Deb was the kindest manager of all time. Every single week when I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know what I was doing. She was like, it's okay. What do you think about next time? And gave me a lot of trust and support. So I just want to give a massive shout out to Deb, who is effective, even though the people underneath her like me are just complete nigum poops. So thank you so much. With that having said, Stefano, what is your spotlight today? So I don't know how many people know this story, but it was Bruce Barrett who, after I set up the Linux user group in Milan with other people, we co-founded it. Bruce Parent was one of the first employees of HP at the time. And he came to Milan to give a talk about, about open source and free software. And I was amazed. I was like, oh my God, this is great. Maybe people can really have a career on this with this stuff. So I could do that. So I remember going after they spoke and I asked him if I, as a non-developer, could become an advocate for open source. And he was like, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I started. So shout out to Bruce for pushing me in the, the deep end. And I want to say in terms of project, I want to mention IndieWeb. IndieWeb has developed a set of tools that allow your the WordPress and hosting blog uh, software systems to spread your thoughts from one place to another. Uh, they call it Posse and aggregate comments back into your blog, which I find it on my fully.net, my personal blog, find it amazing, super cool. I played with it for two years. It's really amazing stuff. All right, Bruce Perez and Indie Web, thank you so much. Grazie mille. And uh, Stefano, it was wonderful to have you on. I really appreciated hearing about what you think the OSI can do and how it's changing. Sorry for the difficult questions, but I think you actually answered them very well from my perspective. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the conversation continues to grow under your stewardship. Grazie mille again, and uh, thank you so much. Ciao, Justin. Ciao, Richard.